Hello, and welcome back to Rewildology, the show that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I am your host, Brooke Mitchell, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. March was a bang. We added four new countries to the show's country list and traveled literally all over the globe exploring conservation. If you missed an episode and would like to hear a little snippet before diving into the full thing, check out these highlights to see if you might want to go back and listen to the episode in its entirety. All right, let's dive in. First in March, we met Miha Krofel, PhD, head of Wildlife Ecology and Management Research Group at the University of Ljubljana and a member of the IUCN's Cat Specialist Group, Canid Specialist Group, and Large Carnivore Initiative of Europe. And then also, I was just poking around your research gate, and I saw this headline, or this paper that you published, I think it was in October, about it said golden jackal as a new kleptoparasite for Eurasian lynx in Europe. So there's a new thing now for the lynx? <laughs> golden jackals? Is that new or just new to science? Or what's the, what's the story behind that? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting story, actually. It's one of the most dramatic changes we are seeing in carnivore world in Europe oh, in the wow. last few decades is, is definitely a jackal. The golden jackal is kind of a, it's basically a counterpart of, of a coyote you have in North America. Mm-hmm. And similar like coyotes were spreading in some parts of, the, of, the, of North America. It's like, yeah, similar to expansion of golden jackal, but maybe let's say, you know, times 10 or times, times 100 even, because the historically golden jackal was very limited in Europe. It was present for at least centuries, but probably millennia. It was basically limited to the fringes of Europe, especially the coastlines and islands of the Mediterranean Sea and the Black Sea, so Southeast Europe, like I said, yeah, at least for centuries. And then suddenly, towards the end of the 19th century, it started expanding. Mm. And especially after Second World War, it's just like a boom. It's like, it's, it's, it's crazy. Like it's exponentially increasing. For example, it had, it was probably, I will guesstimate a bit, but maybe we had like, you know, a few hundreds of jackals stopped. And now suddenly we have over 100,000, maybe coming Whoa. close to the half a million. Yeah, it's just crazy how, how, how it basically exploded. It's, it's showing kind of its characteristics, what you expect from the, you know, invasive alien species that comes to a new place and just mm. starts spreading like crazy. And we're seeing, and this is like a native carnivore here, you know, nobody brought it here. So, of course, there was a big question what triggered this massive response. So, from basically really limited to these fringes of Europe for centuries, and then suddenly it's like all over the place. We have now jackals all the way to the tip of Norway. You know, there are now four jackals in France. You know, Germany, the whole central Europe is full of them, Pannonian Basin, like they really spread a lot. And when we're looking into the potential changes that happen in Europe uh, that would allow jackals to spread, it all points in the same direction. And this seems to be the wolf, the gray wolf, mm-hmm. uh, or more precisely, lack of wolf. Because in the same period, actually, when, when jackals start spreading, this time that wolves became really heavily persecuted throughout Europe. And we actually exterminated most of the wolf populations here. They just survived, especially, let's say, after the Second World War. They were limited to just these most remote forested you know, mountains of Europe. But from everywhere, from the lowlands and large part of Europe was without wolves. And this is what it seems to enable jackal to really start spreading. So it's a, it's a similar story. Like we know with coyotes also, you know, they're spreading right. areas when the wolves were exterminated, like, you know, especially the East Coast, uh, also like Labrador, you know, even places where 
probably there were no coyotes historically, but afterwards were exterminated. This kind of enabled them to spread there. And it seems similar process just on a much bigger scale is happening in Europe with the golden jackal. Yeah, of course. And one of the question is, what are these jackals bringing? You know, this, we don't call it alien species because you know it's native and it's spreading on its own. It's not that people were moving it, but still, it's a new species. A species that was not present in Europe, you know, ever. So, big question is then also, what what are these animals bringing? So, what, how they will change the ecosystems? Because they are you know, can be very effective scavengers. They are also you know predator of many rodents, but they also go for young or even adult ungulates. So we don't really know what's, what's coming with them. And one of the first cases actually that what we observed is that similar to the brown bear, they also start showing up at the lynx kills oh. and kept rising on the lynx kills. So, I mean, I don't expect it will ever be as intensive as with the brown bear, but still it's kind of an interesting phenomenon to follow, you know, how, how these new, new, new species showed up and it's now interacting with species like lynx you know, relying on their food. Interesting, actually, what we're seeing now is because lynx, overlaps a lot in their distribution with the wolf because they both survived in these more remote you know mountainous forest areas and because still wolf has a major impact on the jackal distribution is just a recent paper we're we're now submitting where we tested like different parameters that affects the presence of jackal in europe and actually the stable wolf pack is number one reason why there'll be like you know uh, affecting probability of, of jackal present and because the wolves, they overlap with lynx, it seems that actually wolves as kind of a protection from the jackal for the lynx. Wow. So, you know, I usually think about lynx and wolves as competitors, you know, right. and they, they don't see that they would, you know, really be friends. But in this interaction, when I have this now third species now coming in, uh, the jackal, they actually seems to be, you know, enemy of your enemies, friends. Yeah, so, you know. <laughs> common enemy. <laughs> Because, yeah, I mean, between wolves, wolves and lynx, actually, we don't see that much negative interactions. Uh, they definitely they compete for the same prey species, but, you know, we don't see much kleptoparasism. Mm. We didn't see, we didn't find any case of like wolves killing lynx and stuff like that. Perhaps the, the wolves can in the end actually be a good guy for the lynx because they will prevent, you know, jackal from jackals coming over. Because the problem with jackal is, in a way, they can attain very high densities. Mm. So basically, in one territory of one wolf pack, you can easily have, you know, 50 or maybe even 100 jackal territories. Whoa. Uh, because they have Whoa. much, much smaller territories. Yeah. And so they have much, much higher densities. So, you know, you can imagine even, let's say, one wolf will take, I don't know, let's say five kills from lynx per year, you know, because they have mm -hmm. so much jackals. Even if one jackal would take, you know, not even a single kill every year. There are so many jackals in the, in the end, they will still take much more kills from the lynx than, than let's say the wolf. So it's potentially it could be it could be a big factor. Although there is a one big difference, let's say, especially if we compare it with the brown bear, is that lynx very likely can defend the kill from the jackal. Oh uh, yeah. At least at, or at least it's with one jackal. We're not sure what happens when there's a you know there's a, like a whole family of jackals, a whole pack. But at least against one you know, it's a cat and, you know, you don't want to mess <laughs> with a cat, especially if it's bigger than you. Uh, right. While against bear, lynx doesn't have a chance. I mean, you know, just the, the size difference just too big. So there's no way that lynx would defend it against against the bear. So that's another aspect that we'll have to see. We have to follow in the future to see how, how this interaction establishes itself. Second, we sat down with Michelle LaRue, PhD 
spatial ecologist and associate professor of Antarctic marine science at the University of Canterbury. So I think that the main theme of today is starting to bring itself up and this is mapping, you know, your mapping work. So how did this apply to what you end up continuing on doing? And maybe if you want to even maybe teach us a little bit about the species that you work with a lot too. So how, maybe just let's take this big picture. What exactly do you do? And how did all of this come together maybe at this point in your life? Oh God. So I asked what, I'm like, what do I do for a living? I don't even know. I I know. Like, what is it that I do? I answered emails. That's what I do. That's that's the actual answer. What have I been trained to do? That's a different question. So what I've been trained to do is, you know, as a wildlife ecologist, spatial ecologist, what I've been trained to do is to kind of figure out where animals are, how many there are, and why they live in certain places over others. And kind of just real generally, that's that's what I do. But along those lines, the other thing that I do and, and learn to do really well is to count them from space. So that's so like looking at high resolution si- satellite imagery, that's been kind of my jam over the past 15 years or so is like trying to figure out how we can use new technology, high resolution satellite imagery to understand where what else seals live, where emperor penguins live, Adelie penguins, crab eater seals, um, and then even in the Arctic looking for like muskox and polar bears. So that's really the the work that I've been trying to kind of figure out as I as I go along. So it's looking at, you know, habitat and spatial distributions of animals. So that's essentially what I do is I try to figure out like for the past, I don't know, 10 years or so, I would say I've been trying to figure out how to use the, that technology to to understand what we're seeing. Right. Because you can't just take an image and then like, count everything you see and then say that's how many there are. It's, it's far more complicated than that. And so. So with all these different species, it's been a matter of like methodically figuring out what we can say with with the imagery and and what that then translates to as far as population trends, population estimates, um, habitat, you know, what's going to happen in the future, that kind of a thing. So, yeah, it's been a lot of uh, kind of trial and error, I would say, over the past 10 to 15 years or so. Yeah. And that's so cool because me not not really knowing about this type of research before I sat down with you, which is so cool. I would feel like this would give you access to areas that we probably normally couldn't survey, right? I would imagine. That is the most, like, that was the most exciting part of the realization that we could see these animals from a satellite image because it's like, oh my God, this completely changes everything because doing work in Antarctica, most of the animals that are studied at all, let alone like long-term studies are nearby research stations, right? So it's this like proximity to be able to physically Mm. get to them, right? Well, Antarctica is huge, right? And the coastline (laughs) is thousands and thousands of miles long. And there's a lot of places where these animals could be. Um, And so there's a lot we're missing out on. And so if we can see and have this remote view, that completely changes everything. And so that was really probably one of the more exciting things for me as a scientist was having that realization of going like, oh my gosh, I have a background in wildlife ecology, like a passion for conservation. And I have these skills in, you know, remote sensing interpretation and GIS and seeing, you know, the little black dots on the white ice and realizing those are what else feels like this changes everything. I'm like, oh my God, we can actually see the coastline. We can see these places that we can't physically get to and have for the first time the ability to know how many there are. And that's just, I mean, we just never had the, uh, the ability to do that. So it's really been really exciting. Next in March, we had a fantastic conversation with Romel Vega, CEO of Holo Footwear. 
So why did you feel it was part of your mission to launch a sustainable shoe brand? You could have become the, you know, sustainability director or like a sustainability director for another shoe brand that, that would have gladly hired you to essentially build their sustainable shoe line. But you decided that you needed to go do your own thing. So what, what void did you see in the sustainable outdoor shoe world that you felt that you could fill that you wouldn't be able to fill in like a bigger company? Yeah, you know, it definitely is a passion, right? Like I think when you do this, you're following your passion. I think that's first and foremost. When the whole idea came up, I was simply going to start a shoe company, right? It wasn't, it, the beginning wasn't like, I want to start a sustainable company. The beginning was, I want to start a, sh- a shoe company that's affordable, that looks really good. And then, you know, it's interesting, my wife now, who was my girlfriend at that time, she's much, much smarter than I am. She was like, well, if you're going to start a company, like, you got to make it sustainable. I was like, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> I think you're onto something, right? And so we, we got into this path, and I'm like, what is sustainability? Like, what is, like, what, like, what is it exactly? And like, I'm a, I like to, I'm a thing, very different mindset of what something is sustainable, right? Because that word gets thrown around, like, oh my God, everyone does it, right? And so I'm just sitting here like, look, you know, I've, I've been to China, like, I know how shoes are made, like, I know how material is actually sourced. Like, so there's, there was a point in time when I was flying I was driving back and forth from Michigan to Oregon during that pandemic because she lived in Michigan. I still have a place in Oregon. And I was stopping like places like Iowa. I was stopping places like, you know, Montana. Like I was stopping places like Wyoming, which if you've ever been, is a vast piece of land. All you do is think and drive like windshield time. And like, I took a flight once from Portland to Michigan and I was reading a magazine and I was talking about a certain brand and it'll be, I'll be honest, it just brought me the wrong way, you know, in a weird way, because mm. I've been doing floor for so long that it was like, it's like the Silicon Valley, you know, uniform and the coolest thing in town, the coolest shoes, and they're made sustainably. And, you know, I'm looking at this, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, the, where's the added value for the customer, right? I was thinking to myself, like, where is the added value there? Like, because somebody who's influential wears a pair of shoes that it's made responsibly, claim to be a, a brand or any brand really that like, oh, we can measure CO2, you know? And I'm sitting here like, wait a minute. There's no way in hell you can measure a CO2 of a shoe. There's just no way. And I've been doing this for a long time. And so I set out to create a brand that was just like honest, like down and dirty, like super raw, you know, just like real honest in the way we make our brand, our product and our brand. like. We don't do, we don't have any certifications, right? Because like, why do you need certification? You're like an adult, like you should just do the right thing. Like, like who made certain people that certify other brands, like the police of sustainability, first of all, like they're all making money. They are all making money. Every time you see that label on something, they get paid, right? And so I refuse to do that because I know how product is made. And so we set out to create this real honest company that, it's not going to upcharge something because it's made responsibly. We're not going to upcharge our customer and our consumer is not going to have to pay and overpay for product, which for a fact, I know how much it costs to make because I've been where it's made. 
and I spent a lot of time where it's made. I understand materials. I know how it's made. And so they're charging for brand and they're charging for, you know, certain things that it just, it just like really rubbed me the wrong way. And so I set out to be, you know, be a disruptor, you know, I was like, you know, I'm going to disrupt this nonsense. What it is, it's just nonsense that the consumer has to overpay for something that is doing the right thing. Right. So it's like, I don't know. I'm a big fan of Spike Lee. So like do the right thing. Like if I have that shot on right now, <laughs> I would do the right thing. Right. But it's like, yeah. You just become, you just start, you know, become disruptive. You're like, you know what? I'm going to create a product that looks really good. That's everybody on the team has worked at a, a bunch of different companies. So we all really know the system, how it works. So we're kind of like their biggest nightmare. Cause now we went and created this brand on the ethos that sustainability should be for all. You got to democratize it. It should be for people who are for lower incomes. It should be for people higher higher income. It should be for people who live in Wyoming, not just like San Francisco and not just New York. It has to be for everyone for us to really make a difference in recycling trash. I mean, if, if only the cool kids in school are wearing, and that's two out of 10, like they're not really making a difference. And if you really cared about people and sustainability, do you make it affordable to everybody? Like that's our challenge, not only to the industry, but that's our challenge to ourselves as a brand. It's like, let's, take the, the talent and the knowledge that we've gained and really flip this industry on its head. And, and then on top of that, we can say, and I dare anybody to, you know, tell us that we don't know what we're talking about um, because they can't, dis they can't disvalue your opinion because you've done it. And so we're doing, we're being disruptive in a cool way and we're finding really cool partnership. And like I said, we're not, we don't play the certification thing. We don't, we don't have the school stickers on our window, in our office, on our boxes, like, I'm sorry, I'm gonna play that game. That's nonsense. Like we are doing the best we can to make the best footwear made in the best possible way, responsibly. That means, you know, not overcharging the consumer for something. And the beauty is then you start selling shoes that like Nordstrom's and REI and like it validates you. Like it's like it's super funny. It's super cool. Like I love to see my $65 pair of shoes that's made in the same factory as everyone else, really sit next to like the $200 pair of shoes. And it's like, <laughs> it's just great. And people are buying it and it's fun. And it's a, it's a serious business, but it's, it's really more of a like, wait a minute. Like we got to change this narrative that like sustainability is just for like the cool kids and this and that. Like, no, 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 no. It has to be for everyone. And everyone has to participate simply because everyone should have the right to participate in making and buying responsible stuff. The more, the more people can participate in it and you can talk about brand and brand direction, but if you really want to make a difference, like don't price them out, price them in, price them in, allow them to participate with their wallets, which I think some of them can't because it's too expensive. And so they'll never, they'll never be able to participate in making a difference because they get priced out. Fourth in March, I dove into top headlines and discussed Utah's mountain lions with Denise Peterson and gave a rundown of the controversial Willow Project. Well, hi, Denise. Okay, so my online feed has been blowing up with what's going on with Utah's mountain lions. Could you maybe just explain the situation to me who I know a little bit, but I don't know near as much as I could know, and then maybe someone who might not have any idea what's going on with Utah's uh, mountain lions. So, so what's the situation? Can you just bring us up to speed on what's going on? Yeah, so absolutely. Um, a few weeks back, we had our legislative session 
and two representatives, Senator Snyder and Senator Sandal, introduced at the very last minute, and I'm talking a couple hours before the actual bill was voted on, uh, regulation to open mountain lions up to year-round hunting and trapping. And so to clarify right now, hunt, trapping is not allowed whatsoever of mountain lions in Utah. So they introduced this a couple hours before the bill was voted on. And a number of the folks who actually voted on this bill weren't even aware that it had been introduced. So mm. the public didn't have an opportunity to comment on it. Representatives that don't support hunting lions voted for it. So there's been a lot of controversy with it because it's very deceptive to introduce something like this at the last possible minute with almost nobody knowing and having the chance to comment on it in such a way that it would pretty much overhaul the management of cougars in Utah. And the problem with that is that with the language being the way that it is, is that it essentially removes power from the Division of Wildlife Resources, biologists, researchers, scientists, people who know the animals and understand the animals. It takes the power to manage them away from the Division of Wildlife Resources. Essentially, at the end of the day, if this is signed into law, what will happen is mountain lions will no longer be a big game species here in Utah. It was interesting. I was talking to one of my colleagues. The status of mountain lions will be more closely to say, like a skunk, essentially. What? So, yeah, yeah, they won't have protections like they do now. And all you'll need is a license, and you'll be able to go out and kill lions. And again, this is year round, so there are a lot of problems with it. Um, it doesn't take into account all of the research that's been done in the past and currently going on here in Utah about lions and their impact on mule deer and predation rates and, you know, not even thinking about their role in the healthy functioning and resilient ecosystem. Um, so essentially it's, I don't want to say waging war on lions, but it's very similar too, because you're taking the science out of management and just saying, okay, we're just going to go out and kill as many lions as we can using all methods possible, which includes now hunting and trapping. So it's pretty bad. So was this like a writer to a bill? Like they just like kind of snuck it in on the backside to something else that was going on, especially if the people in power didn't even know that this was coming and so what was that what was it tied to i'm assuming something else like you said that people that wouldn't normally support this they voted on it so i'm assuming it was attached as a writer to some bigger issue mm -hmm. do you by chance know what that was and how it got tied into it yeah so as to how they tied it into it exactly i can't say but the bill itself was amendments to wildlife regulations and it most specifically addressed camera trapping regulations more than anything. Um, there was some other regulations about CWMUs and whatnot, but they slipped these regulations in a little bit lower down, like lines 260, 270, somewhere around there, and basically slipped it in. And it's just a few lines that redefines them from a big game species 
uh, to not being a big game species anymore. And then it opens them up to trapping in the language. Mm. So yeah. who who did this? Who inserted this line into the bill? Like who's at fault? <laughs> yeah, who's at fault? That's a complicated question. There's a lot more to it. But the very Reader's Digest version is it was Senators um, Scott Sandal and Senator Casey Snyder. And there's a lot of interesting things going on right now, too, with these representatives, particularly Representative Snyder. Um, it just came to my attention this morning that there's a lawsuit right now involving Senator Snyder up in Summit County because he tried to do this same thing where he mm. tried to um, slide in another piece of legislation on something completely unrelated. So it's not the first time he's done something like this. And they have interest in ranching. There's a lot more to it than that, obviously. Um, but these are the two representatives that did slip this in at the very last moment. Do they have certain reasons? Meaning, like, are they, I guess, maybe from, like, a biological standpoint, is there, is there something wrong going on with the mountain lions? Like, why would they want the population to be completely decimated? What is What do you feel is probably their motivation for wanting to do this? Good question. So the thing that we hear most often is that the reason that they want to reduce the lion population here is so that they can boost the mule deer population. They're concerned that there's an ever-increasing population of lions across Utah. And while that was true, I'd say for the last 20 years or so, in the last three since HB 125 passed in 2020, Harvest has increased substantially across the state, so we're actually seeing a decline in mountain lion numbers. Um, and if you want, I can get you the exact numbers on them later in terms of harvest and whatnot. Um, so they've already been trying pretty intensively for the last three years to knock lion numbers down so that they can try and increase mule deer numbers. And in all but one, unit it did not help so in only one unit did they see any kind of evidence that there might be an increase in mule deer numbers but the rest of them it didn't help whatsoever it's typically other drivers so like harsh winters habitat loss drought things like that that are causing the mule deer decline but the approach continues to be kill more lions, we'll get more deer. It's not supported by the science, it's not supported by the research, but that is something that you'll often hear touted and likely that has a significant part to play in this. Lastly for the month, we met Anna Namajuk, Polish author and the writer of Instinct. So let's actually start diving into that before we get to your book itself because this is a whole other process that just is fascinating to me could you teach us a little bit about poland's wolves and maybe their history of what they've gone through and then uh, up until today so yeah let's just have the poland polish wolves 101 sure. if you wouldn't mind sure no 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 of course it's um kind of similar story to, I mean, Polish wolves and let, let's say Czech wolves or Germany wolves, German wolves. 
I don't know if they have nationalities, <laughs> at least that they are aware of. But yeah, it would be the same story, similar story for most of European countries. But the more to the east of Europe, the better wolves were treated, I would say. But not because we are, I think it may have been connected with the poorness of the countries in the past. Mm. So yeah, 15th century gone already in England. And in, um, in Poland, we started uh, hunting wolves in around 19th century. So they were quite, quite lucky in that sense, you know, because we start to, started to do it quite late. And so they were hunted somehow, but still they're in the forest. But wars were always kind of breaks for wolves, uh, mm. in, I think, in, in the whole world. Because, you know, during the war, people just want to feed themselves and they don't eat wolves, they don't eat predators. So they just let them go, let them leave, let them be. I mean, they don't eat most of the predators, at least it's not the best flesh to eat. So, yeah, during the Second World War uh, in Poland, uh, wolves population got a bit bit bigger. Uh, Hunters estimated it for around 700 uh, wolves. But after the war, they thought, mm, it's, it's too many. We should do something about it. So they actually decided in 1956, so some, some you know, 11 years after the, um, the end of the war, the, the, when the world was already finished, uh, they decided that they're going to eliminate wolves on purpose and everybody like you and I could, just go to the forest and do it. Take a pup from a den or um, put some poison near the den and, you know, kill wolves like that. And we would be paid for that. Uh, everybody could kill a wolf. It was allowed. It was even, you know, you were um, welcomed or you were, it's the word for it, um, invited and you know, rewarded for that. Mm-hmm. So they almost eliminated all of the wolves in Poland around 50, they estimated, lasted in the 70s. So they said, mm, okay, it's now it's maybe not enough. Uh, they can actually uh, just um, get, you know, totally, they can be gone soon, um, totally. So they decided to change the law. So only the hunters could actually kill wolves and it was not allowed to poison them or to take the little ones from, from the dens from that point. So 75, okay, the population started to grow a little bit. And but still it was going slowly. And wolves were actually seen only on the eastern part of Poland, near Białowieża forest, which is the ancient forest near the mountains where I went to, to see my first wolves. I mean, the tracks, I didn't meet the actual wolf, an actual wolf back then. So it was in the mountains and the eastern uh, parts actually the border of Poland and they actually they didn't migrate to other parts so they said mm-hmm, something's not not correct something's not working here and in the in the late 80s and in the 90s uh, some um, NGO organizations uh, started to advocate for a total protection of wolves and it took some years, but in 1998, it started in 1995, actually, in some parts of Poland, we got full protection of wolves uh, in whole Poland. So since 20, I think it's 23, no, 24, 
oh, 22, 98, 24 years now. They are protected. And when it started, we had the population was around 700 to like, so like before the war. And now in 2019, they did some DNA countings, like national, you know, wild countings. This program said it's around almost 2,000, almost 2,000 wolves. And that is it, a snapshot of March's global episodes. If you have a question about any of these episodes, please submit your question in the Rewildologist Facebook group. As always, I want to thank you for being a part of the Rewildology community. If you'd like to support the show, some zero-cost ways include subscribing to the podcast on your favorite streaming app, leaving a rating and review to boost the algorithm, which will present the podcast to more listeners, signing up for the weekly Rewildology newsletter at Rewildology.com, subscribing to the YouTube channel, and following the show on your favorite social media app. If you'd like to financially support this show and help us keep these stories on the airwaves, consider making a monetary donation at Rewildology.com or purchase a piece of swag to show off your Rewildology love. At least 10% of proceeds from this podcast will be donated to our conservation partners. I'd also like to thank Focusrite for powering the podcast sound. If you'd like to see the Focusrite gear we use to record the show, head on over to Rewildology.com and check out Nature Podcasting under the Resources tab. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at Rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.